welcome to Acamedia's podcast series, Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. I'm Swapnil Rai, Assistant Professor of Film, Television and Media at the University of Michigan, and I'll be moderating and participating in this episode on Publix. We are very thankful to be a part of the Acamedia podcast sponsored by SEMS and the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. The Talking Television podcast series started last summer by exploring television's role in mediating twin pandemics of COVID-19 and anti-Black violence. Now, in our second season, we continue to bring together media scholars and media makers to think and talk together about how television, across all of its forms, from network and cable to streaming and online TV, and how television studies, from work on production to text to reception, may best speak to these peculiar and surreal times. The second season so far has included episodes on politics, tactics, economics, optics, and aesthetics. And this episode, as I said, will be focusing on publics. What sort of televisual publics have been created in this year of crisis and change? And here to talk about this, we have joining us um, Hannah Hammett, Senior Lecturer of Media and Communication in the School of Journalism, Media and Culture at Cardiff University. Hi, Hannah. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, and next up, we have Charlotte Howell, Assistant Professor in, in the Program in Film and TV Studies at Boston University. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. And um, we have Rahul Mukherjee with us, the Dick Wolf Associate Professor of Television and New Media Studies in the Department of English at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Rahul. Uh, hi, Swapnil. Uh, glad to join this discussion. Yeah, thanks for being here. And Mel Stanfill, Assistant Professor in the Texts and Technology Program uh, in the Department of English at the University of Central Florida. Hi, Mel. Hi. Thanks, everybody. All right. Well, it's great to have you all here. And to kick off our first question. So during the time of the pandemic, when many of us have been cooped up in our private spaces, likely spending more time watching TV or online, what sorts of publics has television created, in your opinion? Mel, do you want to get us started? I feel like the the necessity of, of live tweeting and sort of having that we're doing this thing at the same time, even if we're not in the same place, has has really become more a sharper interest that people have had. Is something that feels feels like a pattern that I've seen there. Related to that, one thing that has been very striking to me personally has been this idea of watch parties and uh, these new kinds of affective spaces that these watch parties have created that uh, bring into question uh, earlier ideas of network sociality that was more about a type of individualism versus the new types of collectivism that watch parties through streaming platforms and other forms of interaction that they've created sort of blending together the chats with the experience of watching television. And I was wondering if you guys uh, thought that that is also contributing to creating new types of affective publics and audiences. 
Charlotte here. I mean, I think it's interesting to see what platforms have developed their own kind of version of the watch party built in. So like Disney Plus, which doesn't have the chat function, at least last time I used it, um, but just syncs up your watching with another user. And so you have to have an alternative it's reintroducing the second screen in this kind of newly invigorated way. So you're either on Discord having a watch party or you've got Zoom or Google Meet open while you're watching with a friend versus the third party app Netflix party and early in the pandemic, which has a chat function that you can then augment with a video conference third party. And so unsurprising that Disney Plus is the one that controls the content and minimizes user engagement, but there are increasingly different spaces that you have to be engaged in in order to even approximate this kind of party viewing. Yeah, that, that's that's a great point. And I've also been, I mean, on a related note, uh, wondering about like this type of party viewing, what types of genres uh, lend themselves better to this sort of party viewing and who are the people that you can actually engage in that with? So so going back to the idea of are we being constrained by uh, these functionalities or are our experience of television and our networks expanding through it? So this is Rahul speaking. I was thinking about this uh, as uh, somebody who was uh, you know, part of a dorm where the dorm students then went off to their homes we were still trying to create some of that idea of watching things together and talking about it. And I was like a faculty in charge of a particular, say, hallway in a dorm. And we tried to do this. Uh, and my sense is, uh, not to essentialize this, but some of the watch parties worked better with films uh, vis-a-vis TV shows. I don't know whether it was because it was a more finite thing that one had to sort of watch uh, in terms of a unit. But it also worked if uh, it was a particular TV series and if people watched it uh, to have a later discussion about it sometimes. So those are the two ways I'm thinking about it. And um, just to add to something that both Mel and Charlotte mentioned, so along with, say, live tweeting or, or Discord, another way I found myself engaging with a bunch of these, and not so much uh, watch parties, but more into the kinds of discussions was on even on WhatsApp groups, which was a big part of me trying to uh, be in touch with things that my friends have been watching um, related to particular issues like, you know, farmers protests or COVID related emergency issues in some of the online TV that's going on in India. Yeah, so Rahul brings up uh, great points about like communities, right, that we have been engaging since the pandemic. So it's a good seg into our next question. What are the different communities that you guys have been engaging in since the beginning of the pandemic? And what have you learned from that experience? And on a related note, how have those experiences like connected or disconnected us in many ways? Hi, this is Hannah. Well, I haven't been experiencing the watch party in quite the same ways that you guys have talking about. I've been talking about. I have been experiencing it in a more old-fashioned way, in in the context of live scheduled TV. And that being the case, one of the communities 
uh, swap nil that I have been part of in my television viewing is the very, very prominent here in the UK line of duty community. Um, so here in the UK right now, we are still reeling from the finale of line of duty, which aired on BBC One last night garnering absolutely staggering overnight viewing figures of 12.8 million. And I feel like I'm watching TV in the 90s again, except I can't possibly be watching TV in the 90s again uh, because I'm texting my family compulsively uh, uh, while viewing. I'm compulsively scrolling through Twitter to see what everyone else is responding to in relation to this scene. And so to me, this was like an, an extraordinary meeting of publics <laughs> from the uh, Twitter community, from my more intimate communities in WhatsApp, and from the kind of the national public that is literally watching Line of Duty right now. So if I may put that figure into some perspective for the context of our conversations uh, about publics, uh, that was well over half of the people watching television in the UK at that time yesterday, all watching BBC One to see the finale of Line of Duty. And it means that Line of Duty, a cop show, uh, I should have mentioned by this point, a cop show and a fictional drama uh, has garnered viewing figures that are almost as high for the channel as uh, Oprah Winfrey's interview with, or not almost as high, higher than figures for the channel of Oprah Winfrey's interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, not quite as high as the viewing figures for the funeral of Prince Philip, and only a couple of million short for the channel of our Prime Minister's address to the nation to announce that we were entering lockdown on the 23rd of March, I think it was, back in 2020. Although I should further contextualise that slightly outlandish claim uh, by saying that I am just referring to the figures uh, for the channel. If I've remembered it rightly... Over 27 million people in the UK tuned in to see our Prime Minister make that uh, address to the nation. But given that the theme of our discussion is publics, it's a sobering thought to think that there's actually only 27.8 million households in the UK. So that really was the national public tuning in. Charlotte here. Uh, I think you're right, Hannah. I too have also tried to embrace simultaneity in some respects. But for me, it's with women's sports games, in part because I'm someone who goes to bed early, so all the stuff that airs at 9 p.m. is too late for me. Um, but the fact that the National Women's Soccer League was the first North American Soccer League to get back to play in 2020 with their Summer Challenge Cup, the WNBA Wubble for completing their season, even like their draft, which was in 2020 and then in 2021, some of the highest rated WNBA content in years on ESPN. Um, and a lot of that is... I don't have many personal connections like my family, a little bit, a few friends that will follow some teams, but mostly it's Woso women's soccer Twitter and women's basketball Twitter that are these really engaging, welcoming, entertaining spaces that if you follow the right people, it's like having the wittiest friends ever on your couch while a game's going on. So even if it ends nil nil, it's still worth watching. At the risk of revealing my um, ignorance about women's football to Charlotte, it was also a big day for women's football here in uh, the UK with Chelsea's win yesterday. But I thought it was uh, uh, interesting, which is news that I heard immediately after seeing the finale of Line of Duty. Um, but it was immediately eclipsed by the news about the 
invasion of the pitch at Old Trafford by fans responding to, again, revealing my ignorance, something to do with Europa League gate. But that was another uh, interesting issue for me in terms of what publics are being marshaled by what's happening on UK uh, television right now. So it, it seems like lots of publics have been marshaled. The, the public that follows men's football, the public that watches Line of Duty, the public that cares about the royal family, the public that doesn't. It's also the American viewing public for Premier League soccer versus the UK in-person and viewing public for Premier League soccer because so much, if you're unaware of the controversy, right, the top teams in various European leagues set out that they're going to do this separate additional league that everybody's like, this is a money grab for mostly international broadcasting rights in a lot of ways. And the villains immediately appeared to be the American owners of these, especially the American owners of certain storied uh, British teams like Manchester United and Liverpool. And so it became this like local fans versus the international audience for soccer um, and U.S. not understanding what I'm going to use the Britishism, what football means in the U.K. versus what soccer means for U.S money-making media industries, sports media industries. And so it was really interesting to see that all play out. Continuing with this, because you guys brought up sports, I mean, there is uh, sort of like there's these fandoms. And as Hannah mentioned, like what types of publics are these events or shows marshalling? Like carrying on with the sports theme, another big sport for for UK is cricket, which is also a big sport for India. And um, also thinking about fandoms and what types of media bubbles do these fandoms create given that, um, and, and sort of the tenuousness, like there is this political tension going on right now with India continuing its Indian Premier League T20 while like people are dropping like flies in the midst of the pandemic, but there's obviously ambulances outside the stadium to kind of for these players who are in a bio bubble and continuing to play the sport. And obviously there is that deep fandom. So if Mel could address possibly sort of the larger relationship of what these fandom induced media bubbles mean, the public said that it marshals, but what does it mean in a larger political sense that who can be um, who has access to that bubble and what does that mean uh, in this larger framing of politics and these publics? Yeah, well, uh, Mel here. Um, I wanted to sort of to jump in on what Charlotte was saying anyway, that like this idea that there's the right kinds of fans and the right way to be a fan and those people are doing it wrong and is this broader conflict right now right? So we saw this with Star Wars recently, where people who like the new thing are the wrong kind of fan, and people who like the original, right? And we, we have seen this with political fans, right? I think we can all agree that storming the Capitol is not a right way to be a political fan, and yet, you know, that is something that just recently happened, and these sorts of very intense, affective relationships with mediated texts be they sports, be they television, be they politicians, 
produce really material effects in a way that, you know, I think fan studies needs to take into account. And of course, I'm writing a book now called Phantom is Ugly to try to argue we need to take that into account. So this is my, you know, personal thing I'm on right now. But I think this is more broadly increasingly being recognized that we need to take these things seriously. That's really interesting, Mel. Thank you. And I, I am going to bring everything that we talk about back to the finale of Line of Duty because it's all I can think about today. But it chimes so well with what I have been seeing play out in the fan community for Line of Duty over the course uh, of today um, with divided responses to the finale and the extent to which cultural capital is being weaponized to denigrate the responses of fans who express disappointment in it, fans who are being characterized by fans who were not disappointed in it as not getting it because they weren't engaging with it politically in terms of its real-world resonances with corrupt politics, uh, with cronyism in British politics, uh, and with racialized uh, policing. So it, as someone who doesn't work in fan studies, it was really fascinating to me to see those confrontations play out in real time in the immediate aftermath of the airing last night, but then continuing on uh, today as people continue to process their responses to the finale. I expect this is the kind of thing you think about uh, all the time, but it was kind of new for me to think about it like that. Yeah, for sure. Mel again. Um, but the, the idea of I just want to enjoy this thing. I don't want to think about it. I don't want it to be political. You know, I don't want to think about the, the racialized policing aspect. I just want to watch a show um, that I suspect is a key part of these arguments, right? Because it is continuously the argument that happens in fandom, right? And so the idea of, you know, can't we just have fun? Can't this just be escapism? I don't want to think about the real world. And I'm writing um, a, a piece for Flow, actually, with one of my grad students about fiction that's tagged COVID-19 on the Archive of Our Own, which is a key uh, fan fiction website that's owned and run by fans. And the, you know, the recognition that, like, these are people who are ostensibly grappling with the pandemic, but it's really about, like, I'm going to ignore everything and put two rich white dudes on an island where they don't have to engage with anything, right? And they're, they're in a bubble then. And the sort of the, that there's, you would expect this to potentially be a trauma text, but it's the trauma of a middle-class person who's staying at home all the time in isolation. It's not the trauma of the essential worker that has to go out and get exposed, right? And the sort of, you know, the arguments that we make about fan fiction in fan studies, and, you know, I've done this, I've been guilty of it, of like, it's, it's wonderful, it's transgressing norms, it's taking on the powers that be, yes, from some perspectives, narrowly often white middle-class heterosexual perspectives. And that's not necessarily a problem unless we don't name it. You know, um, just a couple of days ago, Alfred Martin tweeted something about stop ex-nominating whiteness. And we just, you know, it's super important to do this in fan studies. And we've been starting to do this work. I mean, I've been doing it for 10 years, but it's, it's on an upswing right now. And it's really important. There's a really interesting extent to which it lent itself to some of the things that you were talking about there in some ways that were in tension with one another, because um, there's not really any extent to which you could argue that Line of Duty offers us an escape from the traumas of the real world, given it what its key thematics are. But what it does do is take place in a t version of 2020 in which COVID does not happen. And that comes into clear view because the date is 
stated aloud by characters at various points as they record interviews with suspects and what have you. So there are some things that are interestingly in tension with one another there with regard to real world resonances with traumatic events and the kind of COVID denial that you can also experience while watching. So those are both uh, excellent points, and, and uh, Mel and uh, Hannah. And I just wanted to chime in to say that I've discovered uh, a fandom, to think about fandom as therapy, a fandom as therapeutic, especially the production of fan stories as they happen on archive of our own. So I have an interesting instance to point out about this particular fandom that was sparked by the show called Sanditon on ITV, which is a Regency drama that was first shown on ITV and then PBS picked it up. But they, um, so it was sort of the last novel that Jane Austen started to write but couldn't quite finish. And they did, like, parts of that show left it at a cliffhanger. And this has sparked such an intense fandom on Archive of Our Own for fans wanting to finish the story, wanting to have a happy resolution, which is sort of very intensified by the times that we are living in. So predominantly, my, my conjecture is these fans are all women across the globe. So this kind of uh, post-colonial fandoms are tied into that. So these are women from India, UK, Australia, US, like everybody that's uh, a fan of Jane Austen. And there's the stories, sort of as Mel was talking about, like the white male, that being the domain of this sort of uh, story writing. This is a new type of fan that is sort of the older, middle-aged woman and you get all types of stories, and, and I'm seeing like a lot of COVID stories set in modern context. So, I mean, that's just something. So in thinking about the politics of fandoms and how do we resolve the tenuousness is one way to think about it as these fandoms as being therapeutic to a great degree. Well, you know, Swapno, when you were talking about the transnational fandom of Jane Austen, I was reminded there was a podcast, and it's actually from 2018, but I just listened to it recently, about fans of Jane Austen in Pakistan. And there's a there's a book, actually, Austenistan, that, you know, this um, the ways that these texts speak to us and, and turn us into publics or, or call us into being as publics, uh, seems like it has this broader history. It's just, you know, really become intensified in the pandemic moment, I think. Historically, fandom has been dominated by women for various reasons. It is a long history that you should read Francesca Coppa about. But the ways that it's not what we expect to see, though, and that we assume things about the people who are doing these practices, that they're young and that they are learning how to write so that they can go be professional authors, those sorts of things are really common assumptions. And they speak to our values or our expectations, but actually who fans are is more complicated than that. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And, and it's like, <laughs> it's such a mix. Like, I'm, I'm constantly surprised by people that reveal themselves to be, and this is sort of my first exploration of Archive of Our Own. So, yeah. <laughs> Totally with you there, Mel. Um, so, so these are like some of the surprising elements. Um, but you know, on a related note, how do you guys think that our best approach should be towards fan publics during this period? Maybe this is a bit tangential, Swapnil, to to the exact question. But I was thinking just more, uh, maybe rudimentarily, about publics uh, as a kind of gathering 
uh, where you have to kind of sometimes imagine them, but in some ways also see them realized. And from what Hannah and Charlotte were talking about initially about uh, soccer, football, fan publics across the pond, uh, I was also just thinking something that we talk quite a lot about in our TV classes for sure about the sports and live events aspect of it. Uh, and I was thinking about T20 that you mentioned, Swapnil, and how much of it is really made for TV. Uh, it's, it's shortening of the cricket uh, duration so that it's, you know, in the evening so that people can come uh, from their work and then watch it. So uh, even if there are not that many crowds and we know the kind of crowds that come to watch cricket in India, certainly there is nothing like that. And now it's kind of in a bubble where players play and initially also during, I was thinking about NBA here, about how no crowds in the in the courts per se. Now some have trickled in with some tests and so on and so forth. But there also in the, in the NBA as well, uh, there is this appearance of a crowd through this kind of created Zoom uh, and you see them. So even as we watch on television, we are told that there is a, there is a public out there, there is a fan public out there. And you hear uh, the basketball players talking in nostalgia about missing fans and how it is to get some of them back. Uh, so I was just thinking how uh, to think about fan publics in both the, the televisual publics and very much basketball or any other game today is for televisual casting. Uh, T20 cricket is as well. But at the same time, there has to be a, uh, a certain kind of semblance of a fan spectator out there in the court or in the on the stadium. So I was just thinking how those two publics are kind of, I don't know, stitched together by TV all the time. Absolutely. The cutout, the digital augmenting of the crowd sound into sporting events, um, or even the way that music was used to kind of create a sensibility in the the sporting event, kind of in the timeouts of like the WNBA wobble games. It's clear that the, the televised product needs some virtual fans at the very least to go back to this much older form of television in some ways with the audio cues, the kind of helping to guide the viewer to what to get excited about, when to look up if they're, you know, following people on Twitter who are tweeting about it, all these things. Um, and then who gets selected to be the cardboard cutouts is a really interesting subtopic of like, sometimes there are fictional characters, sometimes there's just random fans. But that, yeah, that's really an uh, interesting idea of, of how fake publics can be created. Yeah, that, that's a brilliant point, Charlotte. And on that note, since Rahul mentioned T20, I, I wanted to say, um, I think I read in a news article that they create that kind of audio also in the stadium to motivate the players because they're used to playing two such huge crowds. And then, of course, there's audio, even though they're playing without an audience, um, built into the games. <laughs> Charlotte and Swapnil, as you were talking about these these fake audiences in the stadiums where they've got the cardboard cutouts or they've got the crowd noise, it really makes me think about laugh tracks and the ways that there is this longer history of fake audiences or producing the, the simulacrum of the audience or the, the semblance of the audience that 
I think, you know, if someone's looking for a dissertation, any of your students who are, you know, TV historians, I want to I want to think about I want someone to write this paper because I am not the person to write this paper about the the cardboard cutouts in the stadium and the laugh track, because it just seems really um, there's something there. Uh, Hannah here. I just wanted to, in response to some of what um, Charlotte was saying about, you know, augmentation to create fans where there are none. Um, and if I can just shift the conversation slightly from sports fandom to political fandom. But with that in mind, I don't know if you guys have ever had the pleasure of witnessing any news media footage of the UK Parliament in session in uh, Westminster, especially during Prime Minister's questions. And uh, one thing that became a topic of ongoing debate uh, over the course of the pandemic was the very, very different dynamic of that event in the absence of the other members of parliament who, to all intents and purposes, follow the prime minister during that event, act as his fans and his supporters cheering him on. And this raised a lot of interesting questions about the purpose of this spectacle and who it's for and what the role of our members of parliament are in voicing their fandom for the party leader in that context. And it was a strangely jarring experience to watch him attempt to recreate the dynamic in the room in the absence of his fans. That's that's another sort of brilliant uh, point, um, Hannah. And I was wondering if Rahul might want some to add something because like the prime minister in India performs two similar types of cult fandoms that are performed on television through social media. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, Rahul. Uh, the publicity machine that follows the Prime Minister is, is astounding. And uh, there's, of course, a Twitter public that he has. But then when he has a monkey butt, an, an event where he talks about a variety of events, and he has uh, rarely gives or almost doesn't give interviews to journalists when he does that, it's it's to a very select few, but he also doesn't do any press conferences. So a lot of it is, of course, uh, a one to the, the sort of address to nation kind of event. So I mean, there's something very ritualistic about the way his communications tend to be. Uh, and there is a certain, I mean, this, this, this whole aspect of an aura around him whenever he does that. But one has to watch perhaps as to the condition of India right now with, with COVID as to how long he and continue to have that kind of aura. And and also to think about like the censoring of the publics. Um, I know Hannah talked about publics getting mobilized in specific spaces. So on Twitter, on social media, how uh, the personality cult of particular politicians, how that's mobilized, but also in specific global contexts like India, like being censored aggressively. So, so anybody asking for the Indian prime minister to resign, those tweets were being actively censored by Facebook and Twitter. So, I mean, at the very least, these kind of cult political fandoms are very contentious. So, Charlotte, would you like to talk about opening up of more closed media to wider audiences? such as the increased availability of recorded theater? Yeah, I just think that we are, you know, we've been talking a lot about the absence of publics and spaces where they used to be, the way in which we're 
stitching together connections to recreate a way of viewing television or engaging with media in the past. And so I thought it might be interesting to think about kind of another side of that, which is the way that certain rarefied spaces of entertainment and media have become more open by virtue of them not being able to exist in the space, in the kind of limited geographical, regional, uh, or even kind of building spaces where they normally exist. So the way in which the theater at Lincoln Center opened up recordings that were never meant for public consumption that were just there to be used for kind of creating promotional little bits and bobs, commercials, whatever, but they have the whole play that was, you know, a number of plays and are making them available to audiences, some free, some with a subscription to a platform, the way in which a lot of theater, especially live theater, had to switch and go from this live, closed, one and done, in-person event to something bigger. So like in, you know, in the UK, the National Theatre Live in early in the pandemic, presenting uh, one of their recordings for free on YouTube every week, um, or Andrew Lloyd Webber's YouTube presenting one of his musicals every week, and the ways in which what other things became more available and could grow their publics, even as what they existed as before were shrinking or sometimes dying out completely. I think it's a really interesting thing to think about in the context of growing publics for those kinds of closed media, um, uh, Charlotte. It raises interesting questions about the long-term extent to which we might be able to expect those cultural forms to be more democratised in light of this, especially considering the extent to which some of the examples that you refer to have heretofore been limited to quite niche audiences for one reason or the other, um, whether that's for reasons of cultural capital or economic capital or a combination of both. And then there was this little moment in the in the start of the first lockdown where it seemed like that culture was going to be democratised. And I have to admit, I didn't, didn't watch any of them and I haven't really followed the extent to which it has stayed a cultural phenomenon uh, now that we're in the pandemic for the long game. Uh, I don't know if anyone else has any experience of actually engaging with any of these streams or anything. In terms of engaging, uh, how much I did, but uh, I did want to say on, on, in parallel with that, uh, particularly something which has a cultural capital are these classical musicians in India, both uh, the Hindustani classical North Indian tradition as well as their South Indian Carnatic music. Uh, tradition and the idea is always live performances and, and there is so classical the, fa the very famous ones would certainly go and do you know at least 50 shows in a year or more and uh, to suddenly have them sitting just with a tabla player and say playing the sitar uh, suddenly I was thinking about Shujat Hussain Khan who is this one of the great art, uh, sitar artists uh, and uh, he himself mentioned a certain kind of awkwardness because he sort of really delights, I believe, in this kind of live performances of things of it as much more as a kind of interactive session with audiences. And, to, and at the same time, as an audience, too, I felt strange having been to some of these concerts. Uh, so I think there is a kind of hesitation, at least initially there was, and I don't know where we have gone with that. But 
you know, just to kind of, sorry. I mean, one thing that I've noticed is in Boston, there's a fairly vibrant theater scene. So the American Repertory Theater is in Cambridge, um, and they've developed a number of like musicals and plays that have gone on to Broadway and the Huntington Theater, which, you know, at various points has had like Billy Porter come in and direct a play there. And both of those theaters, because they haven't like the ART is a really interesting example because they were scheduled to put on a performance of the musical 1776, which is all about, you know, the founding fathers of America, but with a cast entirely of people of color, women, non-binary actors. Um, And so they had already developed a kind of a outreach and social media engagement and, and kind of little salons that then pivoted to and amplified in the hopes that well, maybe we'll come back in a few months at the start of the pandemic to the actual productions just delayed. I'm not entirely sure what the status of that is, but they took kind of the foundation that was already laid there for this particular production and then translated into they've been very active in their social media, media productions, um, lunchtime chats with a variety of kind of theater producers, creating dance classes based on their Jagged Little Pill musical, um, but marrying it kind of to bring it back to the overall theme of this this podcast of the two pandemics, they've been extremely active in tying together their media of the theater with issues around social justice, Black Lives Matter in particular, uh, trans lives matter, all of these uh, aspects of the political and, and and the world as a whole and building plays that are specific to digital spaces that engage with these. The Huntington Theater also created, you know, adapted one of their uh, plays from a couple of years ago, Tiger Style, to an all audio play as a podcast format um, and then opened up conversations around it, um, especially as the rise, the unfortunate kind of rise in acknowledgement of uh, anti-Asian hate crimes across the U.S. And so it's interesting to see these kind of very local spaces take these small, generally, you know, you wouldn't, you would only know about these productions if you were on the mailing list or followed these shows on social media, but taking it and kind of building it into media that's engaged with both the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement and, and uh, social justice movements more generally. It's been really interesting. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point, Charlotte. Um, and one thing that, that you and Hannah both mentioned, that it is in many ways democratizing the publics, and Charlotte touched upon sort of this larger impact of racial violence, the Black Lives Matter movement, into, in many ways, like globalizing an understanding of what all this means. And I was wondering if Rahul or Hannah had examples of how, say, the Black Lives Matter movement is in many ways sort of globalizing or bringing together a global understanding of what uh, racial violence means from a global perspective in the wake of Black Lives Matter through television and in this pandemic. Uh, I could speak to something about how there has been a quite a lot of solidarity of the indigenous communities in India who are also referred to sometimes as Adivasis. So they've started their own sort of websites around Adivasi Lives Matter. And 
while I knew some of them through particular issues uh, related to environmental issues where, you know, mining happens and often uh, indigenous communities are displaced, uh, happens in India, happens in other places. And But the kinds of issues uh, that they have talked about in the, on, the, on their website, Adivasi Lives Matter in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, has been much more about everyday issues. So I saw sort of also a movement, say, not so much focusing on particular issues, uh, per se, that they have to go through, but also in bringing sort of more everyday forms of violence, but also the more everyday forms of life that they sort of live. The other aspect of, uh, I was also thinking about if you have to think about race and, and, and publics in the in, in the U.S. context, uh, and, and I was thinking something about the idea of witnessing and how witnessing creates publics and the kind of racist attacks of, of cops against uh, black individuals often witness through cell phone uh, footage, which then gets to televisual footage. And in, in that sense, uh, that there is that kind of intermediality. I was thinking about the recent sort of hate crimes against Asian Americans and how that footage often has been a CCTV footage of people walking on street, a small show of here and there. Uh, or, or a brutal attack, but then sort of just quickly moving on, and that's been captured on, on CCTV footage, which then gets played on TV. And I've seen a sort of much more hyper-local coverage of it in terms of the local TV channels in Philadelphia of, of that sometimes. So I'm also thinking whether the idea of public sphere has to also think about the different kinds of witnessing, whether to a cell phone intermediately on television, whether to a CCTV footage into television, and, and then sort of being replayed. Hannah here. This is a different example from the kind that uh, Charlotte and Rahul have been talking about, but it occurred to me while they were both talking about it, as I was thinking about some of the knock-ons from the global responses to the Black Lives Matter protests that occurred last summer have manifested as a result of the extent to which those protests in the US and beyond have been made more visible to us through the extent to which they've been uh, shown on television at a time when we're all watching more uh, television. And I was also thinking about this example in ways that link back to some of the things that we were saying earlier about how we scroll social media while we watch live television and some of the media bubbles that we've been in. And the example I am uh, thinking of is one that comes from here in the UK, and that's the mediation of the protests that followed the disappearance and then the murder of a London woman called Sarah Everard, which the way they spontaneously organised and then the way that the mediation of the protests uh, manifested very much seemed like a knock-on from some of what we had seen in the protests, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, as people felt more emboldened to take to the streets to express their outrage about these social injustices that people continue to experience, in this case about the freedom of women to move on the streets uh, of the UK. And one of the things that was so interesting to me about how this links back to the media bubbles that we've experienced while uh, watching television was that uh, on the day that her death was uh, announced, the phrase Yorkshire Ripper began trending in the UK on 
Twitter. And that's a subject matter that's of interest to me because it's something that I have been researching since the first lockdown began, specifically uh, the media culture connected to that. And on closer scrutiny, I saw that a lot of the discourse in those tweets was about a Netflix series called The Ripper, which had dropped on Netflix in mid-December 2020, just as here in the UK, we were gearing up for another nationwide lockdown. And it was just so interesting to see people making connections between discourses of victim blaming and the polices of women's behaviour that the series was uh, critiquing about the 1970s context that it was talking about, making connections between that and the present day context of the disappearance and murder of Sarah Everard. And it raises some really interesting questions for me about if in viewing that series as part of a media bubble in which we turn to Netflix series to fill our time in a lockdown, the extent to which that ha- that may have emboldened women to take part in those protests or in or in some sense awaken a feminist consciousness in them about uh, victim blaming or the policing of women's behaviour in public uh, spaces. And that was really interesting to me as a, a, a visible manifestation of people's responses to a social injustice and responses to a television programme that was cognate. So, you know, one of the things that Swapnil was talking about, about sort of witnessing anti-Black violence and that becoming a public as the sort of circulation of social media video, is is that it feels like that's hugely important, right? And that's been a subject of discussion for years and intensified around uh, George Floyd's murder last year. But I wonder about the ways that that public spectacularizes anti-Black violence and, and hides the mundane of it, right? It hides the um, the moments where someone doesn't get hired for a position or someone doesn't get, uh, you know, taken seriously or someone doesn't, there's not, the police don't investigate a crime against someone, right? Those sorts of things where these sort of mundane acts of anti-Blackness get erased. And so that then white people can say, well, I didn't kill anyone, therefore I have not done anything, right? And I, I wonder about the role of bringing attention to certain kinds of anti-blackness is super it's essential right but what is it then hide it's like it's it's so fluid now how it moves between social media and television especially with platforms like Netflix wanting to create like pertinent content um so in that context i do want to bring in again an example from india that with the recent rise in covid cases the fact that social media was able to mobilize sort of a policy-oriented response. So this professor from Brown, after he tweeted about uh, the U.S. holding on to these many AstraZeneca vaccines, which they haven't approved for use in the U.S., and uh, sort of lifting the restrictions on um, raw materials needed for vaccines, how that was able to mobilize a whole movement that uh, was taken up by folks on social media that was, again, on television. And literally, even though we are in a media bubble, so to say, these publics were mobilized to influence policy decisions. And that, to me, is sort of a very fascinating aspect of how these publics are getting created. And I was wondering if Charlotte or Rahul had uh, thoughts on that, of how TV publics have connected and disconnected us in the 
time of media bubbles. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about, you know, the, the, the trade in vaccines and uh, where can you lift and discussions with WTO and so on and so forth. And, and you realize that some of these discussions just don't happen on particular channels. So say MSNBC could be considered a certain kind of liberal uh, news, but, but they wouldn't quite do that to the extent, say, where you really have a meaningful discussion on this issue could be democracy now. And so I've found myself at times, of course, if I'm looking through an election coverage and looking at the last minute of a, of a close election run-up, I might watch MSNBC. But uh, if I'm really uh, looking for a meaningful discussion around the struggles and uh, trying to understand what protesters are saying in, in June of last year, I would sort of go to democracy now. Now, again, here when I'm thinking through some of these questions of, you know, trips and, and, and this kind of vaccine trade and, and hurdles here and there, uh, I found like myself going to different channels. So even a selection of channels based on what one is watching. I don't know if that creates a, a but certainly, I mean, it seems to me that sometimes like based on issues, I pick up different channels because those channels maybe address different kinds of publics. I'm having some difficulty articulating my thoughts around the idea of TV publics being connected or disconnected through our various media bubbles because and I feel like I'm echoing 100 TV scholars here, but it seems like it's more an, an amplification of things that had already been going on in kind of TV culture and the TV industry and viewer habits for the last 10 years at least. So a lot of our examples, you know, it's unclear how much it's just the media bubbles firming up a little bit more in the time of, of COVID um, because we are able, by virtue of having far fewer options outside of the TV world, that viewers can kind of dig into their bubble and with peak TV options, as well as the various streaming platforms offering some version of, of older content as well, and partially it's my own experience, which, you know, having listened to some of the, the podcast in this series, there's a lot of comfort TV practices that go on. And in the way that like in my media bubble, I can just watch The Nanny and then watch Leverage and then watch Legends of Tomorrow and then watch Fringe and then watch The Nanny again. And that way, like I can just dig deeper into this space of like safe TV that I know what's going to happen. Um, but it's very kind of particular to my taste culture. And maybe here or there, I was like, oh, this person also likes the nanny. All right, new virtual friend. But otherwise, it's kind of a, a even smaller bubble than perhaps before by virtue of like, I'm not even, I'm sometimes watching the shows that are on like new and part of the discussion, but mostly I'm just watching TV from the 90s or the 2000s that's episodic and nobody wants to talk to me about that. <laughs> I completely agree uh, with Charlotte and there, it, there is an extent to which what we're seeing magnified uh, in the context of the pandemic are manifestations of trends and tendencies, the wheels for which were already in motion before any of us went into uh, a lockdown. Um, and another thing that arises for me from what she said is that there can sometimes be a disconnect between what we think is a media bubble and what is actually a public being marshaled or vice versa. And so I'll take it back to the 
Oprah interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle when that was happening. And I talked about the viewing figures earlier. So there is an extent to which a public was being marshaled in the broadcast of that interview, but not as much as I thought at the time. I was preparing myself for my next day at work. I was like, this is all the students are going to want to talk about. I've got to be ready to talk about it. I've got to be ready to talk about it. I thought the public was being marshaled. This is going to be the TV moment of the year for everyone. I I psyched myself up for it and none of them had watched it. Uh, So much so that I, I began talking about it without referring to the thing itself. And one of them had to stop me and say, so are you talking about that Meghan and Harry thing. And so what I had experienced as a public being marshaled was actually a media bubble that did not include my students. Mel, do you have a response on that? You know, to Charlotte's point about, you know, watching TV that's safe, watching, re-watching TV that you've already seen and what, what Hannah was talking about, public's not being marshaled, people not necessarily watching these big events that might seem important. Um, and then the, the audiences aren't there. I wonder if part of that is the ways we used to have to watch TV to keep up with the Joneses and now we're not seeing the Joneses anymore in person and there's not that pressure on us to like, did you watch the thing? Because no one is in a position to ask us, did you watch the thing? And the the public of synchronicity or the, the public of of people engaging in products as they're released got disrupted by the pandemic. And it will be interesting to see, does it come back? Do we get a resurrection of this idea of of linearity and avoiding spoilers and these sorts of things that have become much more complicated in the pandemic moment? And that's that's sort of maybe my, my theme, you know, for a lot of these conversations we've been having is, are these gonna be permanent changes? Or is everything going to sort of resettle in the grooves that it was in before? And it's probably not either of those extremes. It's probably, you know, mix and match and some of each. But I think for people who are interested in studying media and studying media reception and, and the sorts of things that interest me um, and, and all of us who are participating in this, to see which things go back to the way they were before and which things are fundamentally changed will be the interesting uh, questions of the next Little while. All right. Well, on that note, um, we are at the end of our time here. And I really want to thank you all for speaking to these important issues. So, once again, Rahul Mukherjee, Hannah Hamid, Mel Stanfield, and Charlotte Howell, thank you for your insightful and inspiring comments today. And on behalf of the co organizers for this podcast, uh, Brandy Monk Payton, Lynn Joyrich, and Hunter Hargraves, I also want to show appreciation for our wonderful sponsors, SCMS, the Acamedia podcast series, the Malcolm S. Forbes Center for Culture and Media Studies at Brown University, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame. We also thank Chris Becker and Bill Kirkpatrick for all their help with recording and Todd Thompson for providing the music and editing expertise for this series. Our next episode will be on ethics. What kinds of ethical practices should these televisual publics adopt in a post-pandemic world? We'll be discussing issues of representation, the virality of visceral images, free speech, so-called woke television, and more.
And we are very much interested in hearing your thoughts about the most important and interesting issues for this topic. So please send us questions and thoughts through email, talkingtelevisionandpandemic at gmail.com, Twitter with hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic, Facebook, join the ACA Media Facebook group and then post questions. Again, I'm Swapnil Rai with Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. And thanks so much for listening. Please stay healthy. Get vaccinated if you haven't done so already and wear a mask in public.